This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. When reading through or studying the book of Revelation, it's important to remember that the entire book is a letter written to seven churches in modern day Turkey. Chapters two and three contain individual messages to each church and each message is tailored to that particular church's circumstances. Uh, the circumstances among these churches vary from church to church. They have different challenges. They are in different um, places spiritually. They're called to an assortment of actions. There is commendation for things like faithfulness to sound doctrine, patient endurance in the face of social and economic opposition. There is criticism for things like idolatry or moral compromise and tolerating false teaching. But there are aspects to each uh, message that are the same for each church. Each message begins with, these are the words of, and then John takes the various descriptions of Jesus in chapter 1 and finishes the sentence, the messages to the seven churches are authored by Jesus himself. These are Jesus's words to them. Now, one of the striking features of this pattern is that it demonstrates Jesus's thorough knowledge of individual local churches. He knows the true condition of Alliance Bible Church. He walks among the lampstands. We read that in chapter one. Lampstands are figurative for the churches. He walks among us. He misses nothing. He notices everything. But the similarities among these seven messages from Jesus' churches don't end there. Each message to these churches ends the same way. To the one who is victorious. To the one who is victorious. To the one who is victorious. Over and over again. This is why this series on Revelation is called Victory. Because as we shall see, victory is where the book is going. Now, victory is not, um, not clearly defined in each message to the churches. What victory means becomes clear only from the rest of the book, which means the seven messages to the seven churches are introductions to the rest of the book. In effect, John has designed a book that could be read from seven different perspectives. You could read one message to one of those churches and then read the rest of the book in light of what Jesus said to that particular church. So in a sense, the book is meant to be read from seven explicitly different perspectives. All of it shows us God's game plan for victory. Revelation will show us what it takes to be a winner in God's eyes. Rather than preaching through every one of these, we're going to zero in on one of them. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the first six verses. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Let's look at it. 
To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In a sense, this uh, message to the church in Sardis serves as a, as a reality check for church attenders. And this reality check comes to us in three stages. Here they are. The rebuke, the remedy, and the reward. The rebuke, the remedy, and the reward. Let's look at it first, the rebuke. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Let's think about that for a minute. How does one get a reputation? Many of you will remember the name Steve Irwin. He was known as the crocodile hunter. He had a reputation for being very passionate about nature. You'd see him picking up very poisonous snakes by the tail. You'd see him hopping on the backs of saltwater crocodiles. It's not not hard to imagine how he got his reputation. Another name that has a wild reputation for their risk-taking outdoors is Bear Grylls. His famous show, Man vs. Wild, you saw him willing to risk his life in simply what he chose to eat. I saw two episodes wherein he ate a dead zebra carcass and then grubs from a tree. Again, not hard to imagine how he got his reputation. When I was in high school, every year the seniors would fill out a survey In my graduating class of 460 students, I was voted second most likely to return to school with a mohawk. What do you think my reputation was? Actually, a bunch of my classmates had conspired to vote that way as a joke. What do you think my reputation was? Reputations are developed through what people observe. What they hear, it's based on your actions, behavior, words, and choices. That's how reputations come up. Now, in order for reputation to be developed, there has to be an audience. There's got to be somebody taking this all in. The church in Sardis had the reputation for being alive. What was the audience seeing? What were they seeing in this group of church attenders? This church was probably an active church, probably lots of programming, lots of things going on. It may have been a growing church, maybe even a a large church with good attendance. Maybe it was known as fashionable or cutting edge or lots of people participating in its ministry and programs. The observable gave the appearance of spiritual vitality. On the outside, things look good, but look at what Jesus says. I know your deeds and you're actually dead. It's striking to me that we could be doing all the right things 
but be dead, not be alive. It's actually quite alarming. On the surface, the church in Sardis looked like they were on fire for God. They're active, committed. But underneath, there was a problem. So the question comes to us, really, who are we when nobody's looking? When we're not involved or engaged actively in some church ministry, what are we like? Who am I underneath my reputation? One of the illustrative things we learn from the sinking of the Titanic is that often it's what we don't see on the surface that can bring us down. It's not the the visible or the observable that's the problem. It's the unobservable. It's the invisible. The stuff underneath the surface. When nobody's watching, who are you? What do you like? This is where the church in Sardis was struggling. That's the rebuke. Let's look second at the remedy. What's the solution to this problem? Well, take a look at it. Verses two and three. Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. So Jesus gives five imperatives. Wake up, strengthen, remember, hold it fast, repent. Now he's calling them to wake up, which suggests they're asleep. And um, one of the frightening things about spiritual sleep can be illustrated with physical sleep. When you think about that, when you're sleeping, you're not aware of the fact you're sleeping. You don't become aware of the fact that you're asleep until you wake up. (laughs) Then you realize, I was asleep. Apply that to spiritual sleep, and this becomes a frightening prospect. It may be that there are people in churches who have the reputation of being alive, but are spiritually asleep and don't know it. We're not aware of it. We need to wake up. But how do we do that if we don't know we're asleep? Well, how do you, how do you wake physically from a deep sleep? You need someone or something outside yourself to wake you. You need an alarm clock, an air horn, a cold bucket of water, the slightest bit of light that breaks through the curtains. You need someone or something outside yourself to wake you. So perhaps the most helpful thing we can do is simply turn to God in prayer and say to him, God, if I'm asleep, wake me. But beware, that's one of the riskiest prayers you can pray. It's one of the best, one of the riskiest prayers you can pray. Father, if I'm asleep, 
wake me. Now, it might be that he's doing that right now in your life through a tragedy, a difficult time, through the confrontation of a friend, a scripture, a song, a sermon. Now, look at the text again. Jesus doesn't stop there. He urges the church to remember what they received and heard. Likely, this is the gospel. So he's calling them to think back to the gospel they received as a way of rousing them from spiritual sleep. That's why the gospel is never old. It never, ever, ever gets old. It has the power to awaken us, to rejuvenate us spiritually. So let's remember what the gospel is. The gospel has two very powerful messages it sends us. On the one hand, it's saying to us that we are more sinful, flawed, and messed up than we can possibly imagine. And no amount of religious activity is going to impress anybody, especially God. I once spent the night in the basement of a friend's house. In the middle of the night, I felt a tickle on my head. So I turned on the light and saw the most ugly, disgusting bug I'd ever seen. Is this blackish, beetle-ish looking thing with giant pinchers at the end of its head and, and long antennae. The gospel, the gospel is the light that reveals our ugliness. It reminds us we aren't as pretty as we think we are. We don't have it as together as we think we do. So the gospel is showing us that. But on the other hand, it's got another message for us. Even though I'm more sinful, flawed, and messed up than I can possibly imagine, through Christ, I'm more loved, valued, and cherished than I ever dared dream. And when you hold those two things together, it's amazing. It's electrifying. This is the gospel. And this is what Jesus is calling them to remember. Remember the gospel. See, what happens when we stop and we say to ourselves, I am more sinful, flawed, messed up than I ever dared imagine. And yet through Christ, I'm loved, valued, and cherished. What happens when we, when we preach that to ourselves? I'm reminded of a story about a guy named uh, Pablo Neruda. He was, a, um, <clears throat> he was a Chilean poet. And as a kid... He grew up lonely and, um, and unhappy. He grew up in deep uh, poverty. No siblings, no friends. And one day he was in his backyard. And uh, he discovered a hole in the fence <clears throat> surrounding the yard. And he went down to ex- inspect the, the hole underneath the fence. And just as he did that, there was a small hand that that reached underneath the fence through that hole towards him. And just as suddenly as it appeared, it, dis- it disappeared. And on the ground, in that little hole, uh, a small toy sheep had been left behind. Pablo ran inside his house and brought back the best thing he had to offer, a pine cone. And he set it down in the same spot And he ran off with the sheep. And as an adult, he writes about how that toy sheep became his most cherished possession. He was given something in his mind that was extraordinary. Something beyond his wildest 
imagination, something he couldn't purchase with his own resources. And it became the best thing he'd ever had. How did Pablo respond? By giving back his best. What happens when we pause to remember the gospel? Hopefully we're moved to want to respond to that grace. Because if we come to terms with our abysmal condition and then see that that God through Christ has accepted us, there's no hesitation. There's no hesitation. God, what you have done for me in spite of who I am is worthy of a response no less than my life. Every aspect of it. Every breath you give, every hour I live should be for you because of your amazing love for me. That's the remedy. Let's look last at the reward. Jesus gives us some detail about what awaits those who wake up and remember the gospel. He says, the one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. What awaits those who wake up from their spiritual slumber? The reward is heaven. The reward is being dressed in white. The reward is to have your name, your name acknowledged before the father and his angels. You want that? You want that? Does the thought of this reward kindle a fire in you? When writing on the subject of heaven, C.S. Lewis said, it is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God. For only the pure in heart want to. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God for only the pure in heart want to. This is why I think Jesus discusses the reward after he talks about the remedy. Only after we have woken up from our spiritual sleep, only after we have recentered our lives in the gospel, will heaven be attractive to us. In other words, I think what Jesus is getting at is, is you're not going to really long for heaven if you're spiritually asleep. Or we could put that differently. If we don't long for heaven, chances are we are asleep. It is amazing to me how many saints God has to take to heaven, kicking and screaming as they claw and scratch to stay here. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to to live with the thought that the day Jesus describes here is going to come. It's not easy to live with eternity in view. You're thinking about the monotony of the week ahead, the, the struggling economy or the political cycle. There are a million things that prevent us from thinking about eternity. But if the thought of one day receiving heaven as reward doesn't excite you, maybe you just need to revisit the remedy that Jesus proposes because only the pure in heart, only the spiritually alert, only those centered in the gospel long for heaven. One of the main themes of Revelation is this idea. It's living today 
its clothing today in light of the future, the ultimate future. So imagine this with me. There will come a time when we all will look Jesus Christ square in the eyes. Try to picture that. It's going to come a day when we all will look Jesus Christ square in the eyes. In that moment, what will be important? In that moment, what will be important? What will be important in that moment are the very things Jesus calls us to live for today. Clothe your todays in light of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. On the one hand, it's sharp. On the other hand, it's comforting. I pray you would awaken those who need to be awakened. Encourage those who need to be encouraged. Spur us on to grab hold of the prize for which you have called us heavenward. And as we do, I pray we would make much of Jesus along the way. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.